Welcome back to How Can You Just Leave Me Standing, the podcast where we go in search of Prince. We'll be talking to band members, artists influenced by the Purple One, academics and fans in an attempt to shine further light on a unique musical legacy. I also want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners from around the world who've been tuning in and downloading the show. From Paris to Detroit, from Bombay to Brazil, we really appreciate your support. Please keep clicking on subscribe, leaving your reviews and spreading the word, whether you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Ghana, Jio7 or any of the other great platforms out there. Greg and Pat Kane burst onto the scene in the 1980s with Labour of Love, what I'd probably describe as a big slab of Scottish soul. They've continued to record and tour in the 35 years since then, and I'm delighted to say that Greg is here with me today. Thank you for having me, Sam. And I wanted to, to ask you about um, an artist who I think is somebody that uh, you admired or was an influence, somebody you've covered two or three times, and that's Prince. Um, mm-hmm. I, re- I remember seeing you on ITV, I think it was many years ago, doing a cover of the song Strange Relationship. Were, were yourself and Pat admirers of his? Because I know that you've covered two or three of his songs. Yes, Prince is the teacher. When Prince died a few years ago, our guitarist in the band posted up, said, my teacher is dead. And he, he the 80s get a hard time sometimes. Um, people slagging it off and stuff like that. But for me, the 80s was obviously the beginning of my career. But also think of the work that Prince did in the 80s, the seminal albums that he released, most notably for us, Sign of the Times and Parade. Mm. But at the very beginning of the 80s, you had Prince for you and Controversy. Controversy is still used as a sample by all the hip-hop and modern R&B and soul guys even now. Um, He was definitely a teacher for all of us um, and how he brought together funk, and um, social comment so well. He didn't ram the social comment down your throat, but when you were grooving your butt off on a dance floor and you started to think about the lyrics of what you were dancing to, they always had something there for you. So that was a bit of a, a, a lesson for us to get people on the dance floor by all means or make them feel melancholy and feel um, all warm and fuzzy, but make sure the lyrics, make sure there's something there if they want to dig a bit deeper. If you pick up, a Prince lyric sheet from an album and just read through them. I mean, they're really deep and very powerful, apart from when he's a wee bit horny, obviously. But he can still be deep and powerful <laughs> when he's horny, but he will go to places that um, you think, right, okay, then I didn't think you could dance to music that was that socially aware. So it was a template for us what he was doing. His funk, we were we kind of drew more on kind of Latin jazz funk. His funk was more kind of straight, kind of hard, uh, working class inner city American funk, which is something you can't do from Coatbridge, but you can admire from afar. Well, you, and you did. And I mean, you also covered the, the actual track sign of the times, didn't you, on 2000's um, Next Move album? Yes. Which is an incredibly yes. jazz influenced arrangement. I mean, how did that come about? I mean, how, and uh, tell us a bit about, you know, when you rearrange a, a you know, obviously that's such an iconic track. Is it quite a daunting thing to take something like Sign of the Times on? I mean, how, how do you go about um, that? We, there's a famous uh, hi-fi producer from Scotland called Lynn Hi-Fi. They're quite high-end. And what they do, is they, well, they started their own record label to promote their products. And the first record they released on Rent Lynn Records was the Blue Niles Walk Across the Rooftops, which is a pretty um, impressive first ever release. But after that, 
because of the nature of hi-fi, they went more classical music and jazz, and it's all for audiophiles. So you were always a big fan of what Lynn Records were outputting in Scotland. Um, and, you know, I was lucky enough at the height of my career to be able to afford one of their hi-fis. And it's an incredible experience to listen to one of these things. So when they started making their own records, they approached Pat and I and said, would you be interested in making records for us? Not pop records, not soul records, but jazz records. So they gave us the platform to realise an ambition we'd had all our lives. I mean, the musicians that played on our second album, Remote, were all the kind of elite of New York jazz, um, from Ron Carter to Mike Brecker. So we always had a love of jazz. So to be given the platform and the money and the opportunity to make the music you've always wanted to make, I had to up my practice regime to about six hours every day because it's not the easiest thing to play jazz piano. And um, I was we were hiring some of the best jazz musicians in the world to come play with us. So I didn't want to kind of let the side down. So there was a lot of prep involved in those jazz albums. Um, and we did Sign of the Times in that style. And it's I think we've only ever played it a handful of times live because it's really difficult to play the way that we arranged it. But Pat and I enjoy stretching songs. And there's an old jazz adage, you can play any song anyway. It doesn't matter. So as long as you've got that um, in front of you, then you, you, you've got no fear for arranging. And Pat and I, at that stage in our careers, had no fear of doing what we wanted with arrangements. So, and Lynn Records was so accommodating and supportive and letting us do what we want. We were very lucky for those three or four years we did those two jazz albums. No, sure. Listen, I was a big, I was a big fan of Prince myself, uh, being a child mm-hmm. of the 80s. But did, you, mm-hmm. did your tour... Any of your tours ever cross paths with his, or did you ever see him play live? Any of you, the band, or seen him? Yeah, I famously was there in the garage in Glasgow. I remember he was playing at the SCCC, uh, Prince, and our promoter was promoting the gig. And he said, uh, Greg, if you go early up to the garage in Sucky All Street, Glasgow, he's going to play after the gig. I went, No, he said, Yeah, he is. Because <laughs> this place only holds about three or 400 people. But Mark was our promoter for years, so I trusted him. So I went to find the friends, the six guys that I'd gone with, um, and they, th- they were all dancing down the front going nuts. So I managed to find them and say, look, if we leave now, and they went, we're not leaving. I said, right, okay. But two of them came with me. And left the SEC and went up to the garage, got to the garage. The bouncer of the guys said, how did you know about this? I said, uh, whatever. He said, well, in you get. So we got in. That must have been about, what, 10 o'clock at night, half 10. And then we proceeded to drink far too much. And he didn't come on stage. He did come on in the garage, but it was half one in the morning. I could barely see. It was just it was one of these things, if you thought about it, you could just have sobered up and enjoyed it. But it was just so wild because it was so late at night and it was pandemonium outside. And, and the two guys uh, to this day still say to me, thank you so much for doing that. Yeah, um, no. But they took, they took the risk to come up and see him. And then I've had many chances to go... Um, I've met Wendy and Lisa. I've met um, Eric Leeds, his saxophone player. Uh, so I've not met him. And there's many chances to go to Paisley Park. Um, but we kind of passed up on it. We were going to go there to record once. But it just it didn't really happen for us. And we, we kind of regretted that. Um, but no, I, I've never met him. But as you say, he's such a big influence on us. And I got to see him in the garage. Well, I think I got to see him in the garage. <laughs> I uh, once saw him at an after show at the Hippodrome. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. the old Hippodrome in Leicester Square. Yeah, yeah. Which was really... That's where, yeah. The story I told you about my nana's son who died, mm. that, the Hippodrome used to be the talk of the town. 
Oh, right, yes. Okay, yeah, that, that's, that's making a lot of sense. Well, yeah, it was just, uh, I've got a similar story to you. It didn't come on until half one, quarter to two in the morning. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, mind blowing. But it, it kind of, I was really, I really enjoyed that story. But did you, you didn't get the chance to record with Wendy and Lisa or or any of the the kind of alumni? Um, they were, um, they were booked to work on Ordinary Angel, which was a track of ours off our second album. A great um, track, I love that track. Yes, yes, they were booked to play on that because it had a kind of raspberry beret kind of feel, and that we wanted, and they. They just schedules didn't work out. They, do you know who was booked to sing back and forth? Wasn't that Bobby McFern? And Bobby Gee, McFern, really? I know. And then I remember him phoning and he said, uh, look, and he just had that hit, you know, be happy. And he said, if you don't mind, I'm kind of running out of time to come and do it Because he was a top session singer, Bobby McFern. People didn't know that before yeah. Happy. He, that was his gig. He would come and sing back and forth for, for an hour and you'd pay him $600 and he'd go to the next studio and do the same. That's, that was his gig. Because he was so good, and he could change his voice, and he was, he was just his voice was an instrument, a very precise instrument. So no, Ordinary Angel should have had Wendy and Lisa and Bobby McFerrin on it, but it never happened. But it turned out okay. Oh, it turns it's a great, but that's brilliant. I'm I'm so glad I asked you about that. I love I love the idea of Wendy and Lisa being on that track. And I was a huge fan of their album that they did after. Um, yeah. We left the revolution. That was a great record. And, it was um, much underrated, I, that record. Yeah. Well, it was a bit of a tour bus uh, album for us for a couple of years. We loved it. Delighted to have Pat Kane with us today, a vocalist from Hue and Cry. And Pat, thank you very much for joining us on How Can You Just Leave Me Standing? Alone in a world that's so cold. I'm sure everybody does that too when you say that. Hi, how you doing? You're actually the first person that's done that, so thank you very oh, much. come on. <laughs> you, you've completed my sentence, as it were. <laughs> well, um, uh, Prince provides... He's a great lyricist at times. I think we had a discussion about that before. And at times, you just wonder what his laundry bill is like. (laughs) Maybe we'll get into the lyrics and the laundry bill uh, later Mm. on. Well, look, I I said to you earlier that um, I had a lot of fun chatting to Greg previously. It sounds Mm. like you had a really eclectic musical upbringing. With that as a sort of backdrop, when did you first become aware of Prince? I mean, when did he sort of enter your musical psyche? Well, the backdrop, the background is basically a combination of kind of big band and vocal jazz, which is my father's legacy to us. So, so beautiful ornate arrangements by Riddle and Basie and 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 um, Quincy Jones and so forth, uh, and then stuff that we began to pick up as young post punks which was when funk came in to post-punk, which would be a certain ratio, ratio gang of four, Scritti Politti. And that would be then realising that was sort of second and third hand to the original. So I was a great NME reader. So you would used, used to get these cassettes on the front of the NME. And it would, there was, I think there was a funk one that had like James Brown cover, James Brown Slystone, opened out a whole world of stuff to me. Um, and I think there was a Prince cover on, there was a Prince song on one of those, uh, cassettes and I think it was I Want to Be Your Lover I just thought it was it was it began to intrigue me 
this guy who was basically just sampling every element of uh, black, the black musical tradition um, in the one song uh, and in the one album. I, I wasn't I wasn't hugely into early Prince, but I, I started to pick up Prince um, around about 1999. Uh, and 1999, I think, would have probably been the song that I thought, this is as ambitious as pop can conceivably get. It's the most barnstorming groove. It's a pre-apocalyptic pop song asking you to sort of wave your hands in the air as you just don't care at the end of the world. And I thought, this is this is ideal. This is exactly what I want to be doing if I'm going to be a musician. I want to make music uh, this ambitious. So I started I started to get into Prince from that point. That would be, but it was coming out of the stew of um, of, of of post-punk lyrical ambition of our father's jazz heritage and our increasing love of, of the, the sources of funk, which would be James Brown and Sly Stone. It's funny you should say that, because 1999 was the one that first entered my psyche. Because I think it had a it had a funny... The, the song 1999 had an interesting journey, actually, because although it was mm. recorded in 1982, I think in the UK, it sort of rode off the back of Purple Rain because it was re-released several times. And I think... Uh, Even in the States, it was it was a hit second time round. It wasn't a hit first time round. But of course, it was monstrous mm. when you heard it. I, I was just thinking as well, when I knew I was going to be talking to you, I'm thinking about the 1980s, because I know that you mm. you do mm. piano mic stuff, you do 80s tours, but talking about the 80s for a second, I mean, given that that was, well, certainly one of the most successful eras of your career, do you think it's a misunderstood era in some ways in terms of just creativity and the quality and the originality of the music? Totally. I mean, I think the thing about the 80s was that it was between out-and-out punk and out-and-out rave and then also sort of grunge as well. So, you know, so the 90s was a kind of an era of EDM and and dance music and R&B and hip-hop rising and strengthening um, alongside a kind of miserableist, Nirvana-esque, you know, gothic kind of rock. And then at the 80s, in, in the 80s, people were ex, were experimenting not just with music, but with their ambitions. You know, so the idea was that you would get a, a song in the charts that operated at a number of different levels uh, that had the punk spirit to it, uh, but that, that got a hummable, singable, danceable chorus, and you would be able to get yourself in and cause public debates. So I think I think it was I think it was a, a decade that was half punk and half synthesizer. You know, and I mean, and I mean by synthesizer in the general sense of synthetic elements as well as the actual digital sheen of the music. And when we were making music, you know, Prince was the guy who gave you the recipe for how to do that, because he would be able to combine that kind of you know funk guitar, bass, drums element with the craziest keyboard sounds, doing the craziest things. I mean, probably, I think that I think the album that begins to get, and I think it was, I think it was an eighties album. Um, was Parade. That was the 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, was it 86, 90, 80, 80, 80, 80. yeah, mid-80s, 86, definitely. 86. I mean, we heard the, the most formative listening of a record for us was listening to Parade in 1986 because what he was doing in that record was everything. He was doing everything. He was creating synth-pop majestic landscapes like mountains, Chris, you know... Um, uh, sometimes it snows in April. Joni Mitchell, you know, girls and boys, f- funk that sounded from as if it was made by an alien species. You know, new position. You know, the slightest thing, but the funkiest thing. I mean, there was 
there was everything that the, the guy was doing everything that could possibly we thought could be done with the combination of synth sounds and funk history and then just complete weirdness and oddness. Uh, or not to mention uh, Claire Fisher, the great composer and arranger, draping his strings all over this stuff. I mean, it was just, it was literally mind-blowing, literally. And obviously, um, Kiss is a classic example from that record as well. But it was literally mind-blowing. And, and it, couldn't have sh- it couldn't have formed and shaped us more than it did. It's funny you talk about parade because the words I had in my head were art house. You know, it was it was almost. I mean, you, you sort of mentioned that 1999 stretched pop as far as it could probably go, and I think parade was parade was another classic example of that. And and as I've gotten older and I've dug into Prince's background and all the sort of things he was doing, you know, I got I got to know about things things that he was recording his side projects while all this was going on, like the family. Yeah, oh, the you, family. Yeah. Oh well, uh, my God, the family. We listened to the family and thought, and when we, and when we discovered that Princess was a sort of Prince side project, yeah, it was like, who is this guy? This guy is like the Mozart of funk, you know? Absolutely. Because it, it was, I mean, high fashion. One of our, we we just listened to high fashion over and over and over again, particularly that keyboard riff, which was played in a kind of rinky dinky fashion. And then they kick in with the music, and then it's I mean, it's just, the the phrasing, the vocal phrasing. Um, first time I ever was turned on to Eric Leeds as a as a saxophonist, the funkiest saxophonist that's ever lived. I I, I would argue against anybody, even against Maceo Parker, the best funk saxophonist ever. Eric Leeds working with Prince. Yeah, sorry, sorry, cut in, but no, I, I, the family was one of our favorite records. When I was in high school. There were two or three of us that became slightly obsessed with Prince bootleg tapes. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever heard the original of Prince doing those tunes, like High Fashion oh, and Mutiny. Oh, all right, okay. I think I think I'll have to uh <laughs> have to help you out in some way. Um, all right, okay. No, you, you've got to you've got to hear Prince's demos of those. I mean, de- you know, demos, you know, ha ha. But I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. they're even funkier when he does them. I'm slightly as many people are fascinated by sign of the times as a track well of course of course and an album of course but the, you know it's so that sparse you know bluesy painful guitar set against a, a drum machine but it just seems to have endless depth and yet there's, there doesn't seem to be a great deal actually there in terms of the the tracking the choices you know? the choices are the choices are incredible his choices are his, his sense of taste and his sense of vocal Rhythm. There are many, many Prince tracks at which, if if you take the vocal from them, uh, they just don't they don't cohere. You can listen to it and you sort of think that's funky, but the way that he's phrasing and pushing, it's like a it's like a history of black soul and gospel singing that's just condensed into the way that he is. You know, sign of the times. My God, I mean, the, what would what was that? Nineteen eighty eight or nineteen eighty seven? I can't remember. Well, it was, I mean, mind mind bogglingly, that was the follow up to Parade. <laughs> I know, Jesus Christ. I mean, 
there's, there's, I mean, that record is my, I suppose for my life, that would be what I guess the White Album or Sgt. Peppers would be from, from, a, from a, a person yeah. 20 years older than me. It's just un, unbelievable. I mean, there was a biography of Prince called, uh, the title of it was Imp of the Perverse. That's um, Barney Hoskins, I think, wrote it. And, you know, the perversity isn't just sexual perversity, although it has If I Was Your Girlfriend, which is the, the ultimate. Talk about, talk about identity politics. I mean, that's Prince just going anywhere he wants with himself and with how he feels, you know. Um, but then things like Ballad of Dorothy Parker. I mean, musically, almost brilliant, beautiful, almost indecipherable. I have, I have driven people mad trying to say, right, we're going to do a cover of Ballad of Dorothy Parker. And bands have given up. They've said, we can't figure that out. I mean, just can't, they can't do it. And but the 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 meandering consciousness that goes through this song, you know, just idly shifting from this to that, then a domestic sexual scenario to that existential scenario, you know, to quoting about a Johnny Mitchell. I mean, it's it's like an offshoot of genius, you know, um, you know. And I think is it is it, and then I think it's proximate to I'll never take the place of you, man. Maybe maybe I've got that on a different album. No, but same album. And then, same and then we've got the cross. You know, the cross is kind of like out grunges any grunge that you would see in the nineties by a million miles. You know, he's it's just it's brilliance. Right, okay, hot thing, barely twenty-one. Prince, please, you know, calm down, take the pills, have a cold shower. But you know, the the closing horn riff to hot thing is one of the simplest but best timed horn riffs in all of popular music. I I'd fight you to the death to to disagree with that. So imagine, imagine having the multiple capacity to do that, to do that record. I mean, it was just, it was so inspiring. I mean, and it was just like you were standing on the shoulders of giants. That's the phrase, isn't it? That when, you, when you're kind of looking at your influences. And so we were definitely perching tiny little microbes on the shoulders of Prince during that period of time. Being kind of guitarist and, and keyboard player, but I, I understand a little bit, a little bit of music mm. theory, and it, it's quite interesting because there's a few the few things occurred to me just listening to you sort of talk about sign of the times there. And um, the first one is just to mention to you, you might know this already, but a recording has emerged recently um, of the ballad of Dorothy Parker that has Eric Leeds horn parts added to. It. Have, have you heard this? No, right. Okay, so I think so. I think so. I think we'll be in touch after this recording. Is yes, I think so. At length, at length, yeah. I'll be supplying you lots of material to stimulate your ears. I think for the, um, for the rest of my life. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's that's one thing. The other thing is there's there's an amazingly just to to talk 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 uh, music for a second. There's an amazingly discordant piece of horn work at the at the end of Alphabet Street. In the second half of Alphabet Street, yes, there Alphabet is. Street, the there album, is. And I've heard it. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, it, it, listen, it's it's not me that came up with that, but the horns are, are are playing something that's completely counter to what's actually going on. You know, I think I think this is the sort of there's a sort of drum machine 
and there's a girl chanting in the background, and then this these horn lines just seem to be <laughs> this seem to be lifted from a different track and just sort of drop. But it, it kind of it sort of messes with your head the first time you hear it, but it does kind of work for some strange reason. I still haven't figured well, out why it works, but <laughs> well, it's it's melodious thunk, isn't it? Not Thelonious Monk, but melodious thunk. It's a, the jazz perspective that means that any mis- any 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 mistake is just a a learning moment, you know. I loved. Someone once described some music critic. It might even have been Barney Hoskins once described um, Prince as being a bit like Duke Ellington. Yeah. And what I think he meant was not just the jazz influence, but the compositional uh, a boldness that he took to bring in things. I mean, I think, and I think the best example of that is the, is the, is are the records where he had um, Claire Fisher on mm. with strings because clear and what he was doing we've worked with string we work with jazz musicians all the time that's that's Hugh and Cry's fuel is it is that we bring jazz musicians in to play within sort of pop soul context so that's always what we've done and the, the reason would that we get the most out of them if we give them the track and just let them compose and let them compose don't give them any prescriptions just let it flow and what happens is you get incredible stuff uh, because they're coming from their pop stands there playing gigs in bad suits with their backs turned to three people in the audience you know playing for their thing for their lives and they bring some of that into your record i can hear prince doing having exactly that relationship with claire fisher in terms of his strings because it's it's avant-garde it's discordant it's it's it, but it's so rich as, as a result and i mean so i couldn't respect Prince Moore and the way that he, when he works with people, like, when he works with people at like Claire Fisher, he allows them to draw on their jazz wells, you know, in a way that's just completely understood. But then gives, but then gives to his pop structures a, a, a spectral quality, a kind of weird quality. But it's not weird as in just weird noises. It's weird because it's some almost symphonically rich, you know. Um, he definitely taught us that. I mean, we've 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 tried that. We've played that trick many many times in our in our music. You know, that's definitely a, a Prince trick, which is to create your pop structure, bring some jazz, maybe sometimes even some classical, and and let it let it um, weird up or or deepen um, where you're at. The way that strings operate on our first album, just an abandoned 1987, is complete. It's complete Prince. You know, that's a great album. I love that album. And I must I must say to you as well about Claire Fisher. I think there's a, there's a lot of interesting things to me about the the Claire Fisher thing. I mean, I love the fact that Prince never met Claire Fisher because he, he oh my he was, god really he was, yeah he was Even convinced, better yeah he was convinced he would it would it would spook him and he believed that there was a magic in the fact that they'd never met. So the tapes oh. the tapes were only ever sent back and forth and. I, I also believe that this might not be true, but I'm sure the 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 prince <laughs> the prince obsessives out there are correct me on this if I get it wrong. But I think there was there was some event. I don't know if it was an awards, but Prince was once in the same room as Claire Fisher, and somebody told him, and then he was aware of it, and he said, "Look, I can't, I don't want to see Claire, so just oh, make sure that I never see them." I know it's a, it's a good one, isn't it? I mean, I that's, um, that's just perfect. I think Claire Fisher's work was subliminally programmed into me. Because when I was a kid, my mum used to listen to an album called Rufusized by Rufus and Chaka Khan. Yeah. And that has, ah, oh, that's got some of the most beautiful work by Claire Fisher on it. It doesn't have really? any. Really? Oh, it doesn't. Chest that down. Wow. Check it, check it out. It's what, it's, and I, I didn't know this at the time either, but it turned out it's one of Prince's favourite albums when he was, uh, he go. was a teenager. So that's, that's, uh, that's a lucky 
it's a lucky circumstance for me. album that I was has completely blown me away in terms of piano vocal and Prince is the one that came out the microphone one that came out just a few months about a year ago or something oh yes it was it was it was demos from their late from, from 83 well yeah yes yeah, he, he, he plays a, a whispery figure from what became purple rain he, he sort of hints at purple rain in it doesn't he you get a little sort of burst of it and it's like, oh, is that That's right. he's, he's playing Purple Rain for the first time? I mean, I'm sure he wasn't, but it's it's the first known recording of it, I, I believe. I oh, think yeah. it is, but he does. He's, he's, he records it in one one stretch, apparently, um, and he does "Mary, Don't You Weep." I've never heard a song like that in my life. It's absolutely extraordinary. When I when I heard that, when we heard that, it was like slight punching the air at Q and Cry headquarters because it was like you know. There we are. Prince has the same theory as us, or we have the same theory as Prince, which is that if it isn't reducible to piano vocal or guitar vocal, then it isn't. It isn't a song, you know. And I really love the later years of Prince when, because we know he had his symbol name and his disputes with the music business and everything else. And he sort of, and I would say, remember, but what the last ten years he started to sort of come out and exist. And, be, and allow his stuff to be recorded. And there's a version of Cream that he does when he's just sitting with an audience uh, and a guitar, um, and it's on it's some 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 TV show that he's doing. And he's so playful, and he's so excellent, but he's so teasing of the audience, and he's in such a sort of space of well of well being. And I really I really enjoy uh, the kind of later mature Prince. Uh, as mm. much as I love the kind of the young Tyro who could do absolutely anything with music, I mean, I I like things like uh, Black Sweat, you know, um, which I think which I think is just a, a late a late stage masterpiece. But he's totally taking the piss out of himself in the video, and he's kind of he's, he's just an a, 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 an older man in a suit, remembering as Leonard Cohen used to say that he aches in the places he used to play, you know. Um, so that's brilliant. Um, and I and I loved I loved Third Eye Girl. I loved uh, ro- funk and funk and roll. I thought I thought I thought the verse of funk and roll in terms of to be a funk aficionado that still you'd have to you would have to be a, a Berkeley Jazz Conservatoire paragon to un- dis- disentangle that funk riff in the chorus of funk and roll. Um, where I've, and I didn't but I didn't go with Prince when he was just shoveling stuff out. In, in in exclusive channels that you had to buy into to listen to. Um, I, he lost me at that point, um, and I only came back around about towards the end when he started to sort of come back out into the world and um, 
do incredible covers like Sheik's Le Freak. I saw, I saw a cover the other week where, he, where she did of Sheik's Le Freak and I was like, I just want to hear an album of Prince covers because it would be the ultimate album of covers, you know? Yeah. So so that's that's much kind of, that's that's the kind of the state of my journey with Prince is that whenever whenever I leave him, set him down for a couple of years and then go back and listen, all the old cells start to sort of fire again. But yeah, with an undoubted genius, undoubted genius. No, it, it was great to hear you talk about the, the favourite eras there because you anticipated another question I had. Prince, in a funny kind of way, had his own, he, he sort of had his own personal kind of punk period in the 90s because when he was writing yeah. Slave on His Face and, like you say, just churning out material to exclusive channels, that was that was his sort of punk rebellion against the industry in a way. I mean, two mm. albums, I don't know if you've heard them, but if you haven't, it would be great for you to hear them, but he... He recorded an acoustic album called The Truth and he recorded a piano and mic album called One Night Alone. And I, 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 think, I, I, I think you need to hear both of those because I think... The Truth if, if you, One Night Alone. Yeah, if you talk about, if you talk about I think, the undiscovered gems from his career, because there, there was a lot of music in that period and sometimes you do mm. have to sort of be selective, but, but those two are... They both have raw kind of moments, and you know when you talked about that acoustic performance of Cream and and that kind of mm. stuff. Um, now, uh, what was tell me? Tell me what the you you're, you're such an aficionado. You can yeah, tell me the answer sure. to this question for me. Yeah, one of my favorite political songs ever, and I'm I'm putting this alongside uh, Inner City Blues. I'm putting it alongside Shipbuilding. I'm putting it alongside Harvest for the World. Is a song is a very sort of seems like a modest song, but it's so brilliant. Called Money Don't Matter Tonight. What album is that from? Diamonds and Pearls. Diamonds and Bushes, which now let's talk about Diamonds and Pearls. I have done a big band version of Diamonds and Pearls. Um, which which if you do it as a big list with a thing called Banzilla, you, if you look it up, you'll see it on, on YouTube. You look up Pat Kane, Banzilla, Diamonds and Pearls. Uh it, it, it's it's a great dialogue with him and his sort of jazz um perspective, you know. So basically you can do it as a as a as a count basic song. But that uh, that song, Money Don't Matter Tonight, I remember it being very, very powerful to me. It might have been what year did that come out? That song? It was an early 90s thing. I, I, I would I would place that 91. Yeah. I think that's 91. Yeah, just the year after the first Gulf War, you know. And I, I, you know, and it was it was the kind of the height, the height of Thatcherism, the height, the very height of Thatcherism. And I couldn't have loved Prince any more, you know, uh, than for him to be bringing out this anti-materialist song called "Money Money Don't Matter Tonight." And I've sung it and we've played it, um, and it's so it's so moving. And I've always, I mean, we had we had a bit of a discussion before about the, the politics of Prince. You know, his sexual politics are sort of all over the place. Um, and, and, I, and but certainly I didn't know this, but one of his relatives was a black liberationist. I was doing this on, on, on Wikipedia this morning. One of his great aunts was a was a was a literally um, reparations black liberationist. So and I loved that quote, that clip. I don't know if maybe you sent it to me of Prince allying himself with the teachers and his teacher strike at a school as a wee yeah. boy. Was it you? This was it you that sent me that. Um, so I've always so that's another thing I love about Prince, and I've always loved about Prince is that he uh, has been, you know, he has stood within the tradition, or the gospel tradition and the soul tradition of music as a as haven in a heartless world for Black America, 
I, I love that. I love I love the fact that he just lets that come through naturally, not in a forced way. It just sort of surfaces and creates brilliant art. I've always loved him for that. Always. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, fun, funnily enough, um, I remember um, Eric Clapton saying in the eighties. I mean, he said quite a lot of things about Prince. One one of which was, you know, why do people keep asking me who the greatest guitarist in the world is? Speak to Prince, you know. Which is a great, <laughs> a great quote. So just, just, just pushing journalists out of the way. But it, you know, he was right. But he also kind of said, you know, Prince is a misunderstood guy, and I think, I think you know, you mm-hmm. know, greats of the jazz world like Miles Davis felt the same. But I, I'm yeah, like you. Yeah. I mean, the more I listen to Prince, and I understand him, he Prince, Prince is the one thread that connects all of that roots music. You know, that, yeah. that goes all the way back to you know t- terrible experiences. Um, you know, African Americans had all through blues, yeah. jazz, you know, and it's it's obviously, you know, he had a he had a bit of a challenge with hip hop, but it's the link to hip hop. Whether you yeah. feel he did a particularly authentic version of that, you know, it, it brings, like you said, it brings the James Brown, Sly Stone, George Clinton thing into the modern era. That's why I think he is the the link person. If you listen to something like Get Off, if you like, which is which is usual Prince lubriciousness and libido and etc. etc. 23 positions in a one night stand. But my God is a piece of music. My God is a piece of music. And my God is a as a lyric verse phrasing. You can study that as a vocalist for years and you'll never get anywhere near it. But that's him drawing in, that's him pulling in the sonics of hip hop, the skid marks, the kind of the record squeals, you know, that's him drawing in. But he's tying it to a level of a level of funkiness and fluency. I mean, it's that there's a great phrase that we often use in the middle of Labour of Love when we're playing Labour of Love, Labour of Love, just Prince Prince Homage, right? And instead of singing Ain't Gonna Work for You No More, Ain't Gonna Work for You No More, we quote um Pharaoh Sanders, the great jazz saxophonist, when he says, Jazz is the preacher, but funk is the teacher. Jazz is the preacher. But funk is the teacher, and there's so much of Prince's work that I think is completely fits under the Pharaoh Sanders quote. There, he's he's completely jazzy, but he's preaching the, the sophistication of jazz and putting it into the mainstream. Just listening to you say that, I, I loved it. There was a thing George Clinton said once um, in a Q and A, and I've tried to find it online. I can't find it. Maybe it was a Q and A I was at, and it was never recorded. But he had a brilliant way of describing funk, which was you know blues. As a certain uh, blues is slow, kind of painful sort of music that has a certain yeah. structure. And he talked about rock and roll as being fast and frenetic music. But he said funk it sits in the middle in this point of tension. And he said it's like an elephant yeah. foot coming down on the one. <laughs> it just slams at a medium tempo. You know, it's like boom, boom, boom. And I thought that's such yeah. a brilliant way of describing funk. You know, an you elephant think, foot. Good. You think of. Um, like the closing track of um, there's a riot going on, you know, there's that Sly Stone re-records, thank you for letting me be myself again. Oh, and he uh, turns it into a sort of industrial oh. kind of grind and it just thumps for about seven and a half minutes. And it's just the most incredible. I mean, that to me is just, you know, I get shivers thinking but, about it. But. but but I love all those theories about which which extend to sort of Motown and, and James Brown. And I love all those musicological theories. Well, there's two musicological theories I love that fit with Prince. 
One is is Cornel West, the historian, black historian, a black philosopher, Cornel West, who talks about um, jazz as the ultimate American art form because it's just this expression of freedom within constrained circumstances. You know, the idea that America could be an experiment, you know, that the that the Constitution generates possibilities rather than closes things down is what jazz was and what bebop, bebop was. And I think your prince completely draws from that well. But in intention to that is, is, the, is the whole mo- whole idea of not motor city, but motoricity. That's just, this is ridiculous philosophical wankery from me, but stay with me. There's a motoricity about funk, <clears throat> which is to do with work and to do with the industrial groove and transcending and surpassing and commanding the industrial groove that you were subject to as a as a black worker uh, in in the proletariat of America in the in the fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties, and hip hop is is like another it takes that to another level, which is like Rakim, I'm going to get paid in full, and it's interesting to see Prince respond to that because I think he created a zone of freedom in which anything was possible for a sort of black artist. Yeah, I mean, again, listening to, to you talk about that there, I mean, Black Sweat, of course, is a, is a nod to that. And there's a Prince track called The Work that appears on an album called The Rainbow Children, which is one of the funkiest right. things you'll ever hear, by the way. You've got to hear The Work. Yeah. So the to, work. I'm, to I'm note that down. down, I mean, some of the live versions of that, it's just so... And it starts with the most amazing horn blast as well. It starts with this break, this breakdown of horns. But it's, it's funny as well, just going back to what you were saying about the track Get Off... Um, Mm. You know how how amazed you were by it and the, the the musical sort of structure of it. I mean, from what I understand about tracks like that, I'm not saying they were I'm not saying they were throwaway pieces because I don't think anything Prince did was throwaway. But from what I've heard, that these things were they were almost formed organically at jam sessions. Where so I think that so someone was shouting the the phrase "get off," you know, and it it was just yeah, yeah. one of the band members, and then they reacted to. And there was a sort of bass groove, you know, and it and it kind of built. Yeah. And, you know, I, I believe Prince just recorded endless tapes of jam sessions, rehearsals, on and on and on, and just was constantly mining them for, well, what became tracks like "Get Off." Um, no, sure. And I think what he does for musicians that that scenario for musicians. Um, I mean, I know the ones I would I would quote would be people like even Mogwai or uh, Field Music. Or, you know, um, musicians who get a studio, they get their studio, and then when they're in their studio, they can noodle and they can try things out. I mean, Prince was just like the acme of that. You know, Paisley Park. I mean, Paisley Park was the kind of what everybody would aspire to as the means whereby you could keep your, your music going and, de- and develop your music. Um, I mean, I would love to have been there. I would love to have gone to one of the parties there that you set up for fun. Don't, t- don't tell me you've gone there my friend because if you will i'll have to kill you i went i went for a week and he played every night ah, oh get lost <laughs> i know i know and and to make to make matters worse he played a different style of music every night oh for god's sake no and one one night I, I, I will tell you this i mean maybe uh this this might be something i have to tell you at a later stage but in, in detail but the one night that was really memorable was he came out one night, or we went to Paisley Park on one of the the scheduled nights. We're allowed, we're allowed sort of entry, you know, very mysterious, obviously. But he, 
we went into sort of rehearsal sound stage and there were sort of chairs set up, sort of theatre style, and there was just a little stool on the stage with a microphone. Of course, everyone starts whispering, oh, what's this going to be, you know? Do you think he's going to just come out with his guitar? And he just came out, he played an acoustic set for about an hour. It was the most mind-blowing thing you've ever seen. Um, yeah, yeah, I thought, yeah. right, okay, I can die now, I can die happy, take me, I'm ready, <laughs> elevate me to heaven. But no, no, that, that was only the first half of the show. So the second oh half, he says, he, he, say, he says to his staffers, well, he said, clear these chairs away. He said, I'm coming back with the full band. And he came back and did a thing I can only describe as, it was like Prince Channel and Ray Charles, you know? Prince oh, get the, away from me. Oh, was, get oh, away. <laughs> as much as it's horrifying, it's horrifying you, but it's giving me goosebumps. But I mean, oh, I, we, we don't have time to tell you the full story of that week, but I mean... Yeah, I, I tried to, I tried to sort of see Prince live as many times as I could, and it's purely because it's a cliche and all the rest of it. But it was different mm. every single time. Um, mm-hmm. But mm. but listen, Greg Greg was telling me that that once upon a time you almost went to Paisley Park to record, and possibly with Wendy and Lisa as well. Well, we were we were exploring. This was after remote, and it had done quite well, and we were quite ambitious. Right. So, so we thought uh, we want. I mean, we went, but we wanted to record at Paisley Park uh, with Quincy Jones. I mean, it's absolutely it was ridiculous even to sort of think Just, about it. We actually did, go go big or go home. That's what I say. Go go big or go home. Exactly. <laughs> so we, that's that's what I remember. Gregory might might correct you on that, but that's what I I remember. You know, our people were uh, these are the people as Ashley Newton and Ray Cooper who became huge. Um, they discovered this. I mean, for their sins, they discovered the Spice Girls later on, and then everything went on from that. So they just they, they were they, within the umbrella of that. They supported various artists. Um, so we were kind of they were kind of pulling strings. Uh, it didn't happen, um, and it, and I don't even know whether the demo tapes got to. Uh, I know the demo tapes got to the Quincy Jones people, and just was too, said it was too busy. But that was the dream. That was the dream, um, and I, it was it was a level of ambition which I have to say, sitting in my buttoned-up shirt in my working freelance flat, um, and a multidisciplinary doing a multidisciplinary career at the moment involving music writing and consulting, I can't even believe that we ever thought that was a thing to pitch for. But we did, you know. Oh, I, don't, okay. I don't. Can you tell me who, who else, other than acts that have recorded? For Prince, who who else has, has anybody recorded at Paisley Park that was yeah. using it as like a hired studio? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I can't speak for the later years, but I, I've got a memory of hearing about. I know the Fine Young Cannibals recorded some stuff in the eighties. I know the Bee Gees used it at a certain right, point. Okay. Um, and then then there was. It's very fluid, though. You know, a lot of it's a lot of it's very great because it was hired out as a commercial space for people to use. But then Prince. Yeah. In secret, would invite all kinds of amazing people over, like D'Angelo and Stevie Wonder, and oh. and a lot of that stuff happened. That you know, oh but, my god! And he would just be hanging out, jamming with them, you know, as you do. Do you think? Do you think so, there's any recordings of him jamming with Stevie Wonder? Is there recordings of him jamming with Stevie Wonder and D'Angelo? Jesus. Well, there's there are there are bootleg tapes of Prince and Stevie Wonder on stage together. So uh, there was a there was a show I heard where. Prince and his band were playing and 
they discover that Stevie's in the audience and they're like, right, okay, Stevie's got right, to come to stay. So Prince's mm-hmm. band are sort of mm-hmm. amazing band, you know, grinding through superstition. Stevie comes to the stage and it's kind of goosebumps. And then they play a version of, you know, the album Talking Book, the second track, Maybe Your Baby. They play a version oh of that. And, that, and that's Get really, out of here. I know. That's Get really, out of here. I know. That's not allowed. <laughs> that's actually impermissible. That should have a health warning on it. Maybe your baby John makes some other plans. Da, 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 da. Maybe your baby John makes some of Prince. What? I know. I know. I know. I knew, I knew that would, uh, I knew that I'd push a button somewhere. That's, <laughs> that's made me explode. I need to try and get some of this stuff to you, honestly. Oh, I, just just listen, to hear it. I mean, you're my DJ for the next six months. Do nothing till you hear from me. Pay no attention to what's said. Why people tear the seams, man, one's dreams way over my head. Do nothing till you hear from me. At least consider our romance. If you should take the word, as you heard, I have no chance. And I wanted to ask a Prince fan about about Prince's death, because one of yeah. the most poignant things that strikes me, if it's a, if it was a death from painkillers, overdose of painkillers, which I guess is what we're talking about, right? Yeah. It's is the is the idea that it was actually the pain came from his stack heels and his dancing and his sort of commitment to that ultimate physical embodied R and B persona and that, that actually was one of the things that he was sort of coping with which was his total embodied uh, commitment to sort of putting on a show mm. you know and it's sort of it's sort of um he's, he died far too young i mean what was he 50 Ab- same age as me 57 58 yeah absolutely i mean it's i mean we had at least another 15 years of music top class I'll, I'll go do anything you want Music to get out of Prince, and it's one of the. It's, it's it, it, it genuinely, in terms of wasted, in terms of anybody who you would want to kind of be able to play until they felt they, they decided to stop. It would be Prince that you would that you would want that to be. Maybe Stevie Wonder as well, and maybe maybe. And I remember there was a, a Q magazine feature once, which was a little bit cheesy, but it was really interesting. It envisioned stars. 20 years on if, uh, if they hadn't died or 30 years on if they hadn't died and they did this thing on on um, Jimi Hendrix as if he would if he, was, if he was alive today and he was composing symphonies and he was living in Greenwich Village and he was having this just fantastic time as the ultimate elder statesman of of the musical fusion and I've always thought of always thought that's how Prince would end up and maybe maybe that maybe he did end up but just I think 15 years way too early for his musical talents to be to settle into a completely different zone. Was, I mean, do you feel that way as well? Do you feel sort of like, that's, that's a terrible death, you know? Yeah, I, I, I definitely feel, yeah, he's far too young. I mean, it's interesting because <clears throat> I found out about Prince's death because everybody, everybody that knows me knows I'm a, a big fan. I've seen him in concert and, you know, I've, I've studied his music and, you know, all the connections that his music has to all these other amazing mm-hmm. artists. But, I'd seen reports a few days earlier of him being in a private plane and it having to force landing and him having to be mm-hmm. revived. And I mean, the thing is, you know, you talk about the sort of painkillers and the opioids and the, the crisis that exists in America um, and other parts of the world. Yeah. Europe. Yeah. 
I'm one of these sort of fans. I try, and it's very difficult, but I do try to be objective. And I've got kind of friends of mine on the fringes who are a lot more cynical about things, and, and that helps. But mm-hmm. it's hard to talk mm-hmm. about Prince in facts because <laughs> it's so hard, to, you know, it's so hard to know what was going on with Prince. We've got kind of coroner's reports, and, you know, people sort of say, oh, yeah, he was found in Paisley Park, and this is the scenario. And, you know, and everybody around him has sort of been. Either they're either hushed up or they've they've just decided not to speak, and so the people yeah, that we do yeah. know aren't talking. Um, but I do think, as you say, I think it is true to say that physically he was maybe in a much worse state than people realised. And like yeah, you say, yeah. the sheer effort physically that touring um, and just being a workaholic took on him. I think some people yeah. actually underestimate. I know this this might sound uh, odd, but. The lack of sleep Prince had over a period of 20 to 30 years. They've done studies into sleep now that lead to really serious health conditions. There's two brilliant books by a guy called Dwayne Tudal that are all about Prince in the recording studio. And they meticulously detail his his work in the 80s. It focuses on the 80s. But the whole parade, Sign of the Times era, Purple Rain era, it's all documented. He actually went back to all the recording studios Prince used, spoke to the engineers, he actually got all the worksheets and it's, wow. it's it's brilliant if you've ever got time it's a great thing you know if you're ever laid up sick in bed or you go away on holiday or you know you land somewhere in the sun that they're brilliant books um um Dwayne's books I'll send you the links as well Pat um, yes please yeah, and then you know yeah. your body you know his body probably was breaking down at a later stage and maybe maybe he was taking painkillers maybe he wasn't and he didn't tell anybody about that and then and then there's the Jehovah's Witness faith which is all about very strict rules on whether or not you can have operations and this kind of thing. Um, right, right, right. So you right, got to right, put right, all that right. in the mix. But oh, looks like I was heartbroken. You know, um, I think when you love yeah. somebody's music in that way, uh, yeah, it was just like painful. I think it's funny enough, actually. Um, a person summed it up really, really well for me. Who I was, I really didn't expect it. It was a pop star. I think there was mm. a quote. I hope I quote this correctly. But I think Katy Perry was quoted as saying. You know, just like that, all that magic was gone, you know? Yeah. And I thought that's that's a great way of describing it. It was literally just like turning the magical faucet off, you know? It was like, oh, that was the thing that bothered me most. I thought, I know what they're going to do. They're going to get a great big screwdriver and they're going to bulldoze his vault and crack open the safe door. And they're going to digitize mm. all the tapes, which is what they're doing now. But the, the worst thing for me was knowing that he would never record a new idea or he would never do a live show again. That was the bit that bothered mm-hmm. me the most in some way. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, and I think that idea that he would have, he could have gone in any direction. I mean, this is the thing. If you're if you're in the music business for a period of time, if you've been doing it for, say, 30 years or 40 years, you know, you're at a stage where you want to do things that are either totally interesting to you or totally definitive, you know? So it's the it's the idea that you get you, you've survived that long you've you've almost you've won your you've won your major battles and you're still there and you're still hungry and you're still interested and at this, that stage I mean it's a problem I have with the kind of youth affilia of the music business you know is that you know you have to life has to kind of roll up with you and and accumulate with you so that you have stuff to kind of write about that has that is that is fragile as well as as strong as you know as poignant as well as as confident i mean the idea that he could have just made totally self-indulgent but beautiful records um you know doing an album of joni mitchell covers or doing or completely responding to the next wave of 
you know, grime or dubstep or drill or whatever it is. Um, you know, it's like a kind of, it is a loss, and I find it as a loss, a, yeah. a, a, create, a creative loss, an, an inspiration loss. a terrible disturbance of the, the funk force you know it was yeah. uh, it created an awful vacuum um well it's interesting i wonder if there'll be a funk i mean it's interesting you sort of say i sort of saying i wonder if there'll be a funk revival um i know quite a lot of bassists in glasgow who want to go and do a snap bass festival where nothing where nothing is played all day but snap bass parts you know from great snap bass songs in the past and of course you know um Probably the best one from Prince would be a well, that's a good discussion, but maybe that could go on forever. There's a snap bass in Pop Life, which is the most perfectly paced, placed snap bass that's ever been placed. That's also that song also just mm. gave me a theory. It gave me a theory for why I was doing pop you know, pop life, everybody's got a space, everybody wants a, a thrill. Pop mm. life, everybody's got a space to fill, you know. And I thought. How can he be so clever about what is happening with when one goes into kind of pop culture? I mean, when you're actually sort of you're sort of seeing people who are completed by your music. I mean, he was he was intuitively super smart. There's a wonderful extended version of Pop Life that goes on for about nine minutes, and it's so lovely. Uh, and it's not if you like the song, honestly, it will it will fill your soul with gladness um, because right, okay. there's an extra verse that was edited out of the original. Um, this isn't a bootleg. Oh. I mean, it is, it is available. Right. There's an extra verse. And then it's just this lovely kind of meandering summary kind of quality to it. You know, like Lisa Coleman's mm. like noodling away on the piano. You know, Prince is just, yeah, it, it, it's honestly, it's lovely. It's really worth hearing. In fact, you know, Prince's 12 inches, that could be a podcast in itself. Well, listen, that, I've just remembered as we close this, yeah, because I've got to go. All right, no worries. Uh, I've, just I've just remembered the one cover of Prince that we did that I'm possibly ashamed of, but we did it anyway. And it was, it was when we were starting out uh, doing the 80s nights at Butlins, which is what you do to make money. This is how you make money in the music business. At the moment, you have to do these things. And I all respect to them. Thank you very much cover the mortgage great but we were in a wee bit of a an attitude about it wrongly but we were in a wee bit of an attitude about it. so the cover that we decided to do because we were asked to do 90s and 80s covers <laughs> the cover that we decided to do was sexy mf which is the most incredible groove to oh, play absolutely. and sing to but crowd alienating just a tad just a, just a soup song of alienation. Sorry, sorry. Uh, you're, saying you did, you're saying you did six AMF at Butlins? Yes. We only did it once. I think we got a complaint. I know you've got to go, but my, my wife had one question because she knew I was going to be, and I must try and squeeze this in just, just very All right, quickly. okay. But my wife's, my wife's much smarter than I am, so I should have asked you this question earlier. Usually, usually but, the case. Indeed. If Prince were still alive today, is there anything that you would want to ask him? 
Um, I would want to ask him, I would want to ask him how much he practices. I would, and, and if the answer was, I don't practice, it's just all there, then I would accept that answer. But if, but if the answer was, I get up in the morning, I, I stretch my chops, I play my riffs, I, you know, I'm constantly making the muscles of creativity work, because if I don't do that, it all seizes down, then I would accept that answer too. But if the answer was, I hope it would be an honest answer, because I think, I, think I think he's the kind of guy who just has so much technique uh, that he will be in a state of constant joy of that technique flowing out of him. Jacob Collier is a bit like this. You look, you look at Jacob Collier making music and you think that guy doesn't need to go out ever because all he needs to do is just express himself musically because his chops are so incredible. And I think and I, what comes to mind, this is probably the, the final point to make, but what comes to mind as an as example of that is the clip that goes around all social media at the moment of... You'll know it, of course. Um, Prince at the Tom Petty commemorable concert, and he played, but he plays the solo, and my guitar gently weeps. I mean, if that isn't a lifetime of playing that kind of guitar, you know, ascending to different levels, that's the most transcendent guitar solo you'll, you'll ever hear in your life, you know. And to me, that is, that's a guy who has done his, not his, just his 10,000 hours of practice, but probably his 100,000 hours of practice. And he is able to just nail it at that moment, audiovisually, for the world to, to venerate. Uh, the genius of Prince doesn't get better than that, I don't think. No, I think I agree. And, and the most disturbing aspect of that may be that I suspect it was fairly easy for Prince to play that solo. Yeah. <laughs> so, and with that... It looked I'm... like it, it... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it looked <laughs> like it was easy, which is outrageous. Anyway, yes. Yeah. Listen, Pat, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Yes, and me thank too. You, thank you for giving up an hour of your time. I could have talked to you for three hours, and I promise you that I will send you some, just some of the recordings that we've talked about today. So that the yeah. gift that, that can keep on giving, hopefully. I think the cloud computer system may be straining at the, at the, at the leash, you know, by all the stuff you're going to have to be sticking up there to get for me to pull down. But listen, thanks for having me. It was great, Sam. It's great to talk. Thanks, Pat. Appreciate it. All right, man. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Bye-bye.